0: Chapter 45. The Affidavit So far as what there may be of a narrative in this book, and, indeed, as indirectly touching one or two very interesting and curious particulars in the habits of sperm whales, the foregoing chapter, in its early part, is as important a one as will be found in this volume but the leading matter of it requires to still be further and more familiarly enlarged upon, in order to be adequately understood, and moreover to take away any incredulity which a profound ignorance of the entire subject may induce in some minds, as to the natural verity of the main points of this affair. I care not to perform this part of my task methodically, but shall be content to produce the desired impression by separate citations of items, particularly or reliably known to me as a whaleman, and from these citations, I take it, the conclusion aimed at will naturally follow of itself. First, I have personally known three instances where a whale, after receiving a harpoon, has effected a complete escape, and, after an interval, in one instance of three years, has been again struck by the same hand and slain, when two irons, both marked by the same private cipher, have been taken from the body, in the instance where three years intervened between the flinging of the two harpoons and i think it may have been something more than that the man who darted them happening in the interval to go in a trading ship on a voyage to africa went ashore there joined a discovery party and penetrated far into the interior where he travelled for a period of nearly two years often endangered by serpents savages tigers poisonous miasmas with all other common perils incident to wandering in the heart of unknown regions. Meanwhile, the whale that he had struck must have been on its travels. No doubt, it had had thrice circumnavigated the globe, brushing with its flanks all the coasts of Africa, but to no purpose. This man and this whale again came together, and the one vanquished the other. I say I myself have known three instances similar to this. That it is in two of them I saw the whale struck, and upon the second attack saw the two irons with the respective marks cut in them, afterwards taken from the dead fish. In the three years instance, it so fell out that I was in the boat both times, first and last, and the last time distinctly recognized a peculiar sort of huge mole under the whale's eye, which I had observed there three years previous. I say three years, but I am pretty sure it was more than that. Here are three instances, then, which I personally know the truth of, but I have heard of many other instances from persons whose veracity in the matter there is no good ground to impeach. Secondly, it is well known in the sperm whale fishery, however ignorant the world ashore may be of it, that there have been several memorable historical instances where a particular whale in the ocean has been at distant times and place popularly cognizable. Why such a whale became thus marked was not altogether and originally owing to his bodily peculiarities as distinguished from other whales. For however peculiar in that respect any chance whale may be, they soon put an end to his peculiarities by killing him and boiling him down in a peculiar valuable oil. No, the reason was this, that for the fatal experience of the fishery, There hung a terrible prestige of perilousness about such a whale as there did about Rinaldo Rinaldini, insomuch that most fishermen were content to recognize him by merely touching their tarpaulins when he would be discovered lounging by them on the sea, without seeking to cultivate a more intimate acquaintance. Like some poor devils ashore that happen to know an irascible great man, they make distant, unobtrusive salutations to him in the street— Lest, if they pursued the acquaintance further, they might receive a seminary hump for their presumption. But not only did each of these famous whales enjoy great individual celebrity—nay, you may call it an ocean-wide renown—not only was he famous in life and now is immortal in forecastle stories after death, but he was admitted into the rights, privileges, and distinctions of a name, had such a name indeed been Cambyses, or Caesar. Was it not so, or Timor-Tom— Thou famed Leviathan, scarred like an iceberg, Who so longs did lurk in the oriental straits of that name, Whose spout was oft seen from the palmy beach of Ombay, Was it not so, O New Zealand Jack, Thou terror of all cruisers that cross their wakes In the vicinity of the tattooed land? Was it not so, or Morquan, king of Japan, Whose lofty jet they say at times assumed the semblance Of a snow-white cross against the sky— Was it not so, O Don Miguel, thou Chilean whale marked like an old tortoise whose mystic hieroglyphics upon thy back? In plain prose, here are four whales all well known to the students of Cetacean history, or Marius, or Sila, to the classic scholar. But this is not all. New Zealand Tom and Don Miguel, after at various times creating great havoc among the boats of different vessels, were finally gone in quest of systematically hunted down, chased, and killed by valiant whaling captains, who, heaving up their anchors with the express object as much in view as in setting out Narragansett Woods, Captain Church of old, had it in his mind to capture the notorious murderous savage Anawan, the headmost warrior of the Indian King Philip. I do not know where I can find a better place than just here to make mention of one or two things which to me seem important as in printed form establishing in all respects the reasonableness of the whole story of the White Whale, more especially the catastrophe. But this is one of those disheartening instances where truth requires full as much bolstering as error. So ignorant are most landsmen of some of the plainest and most palpable wonders of the world that without some hints touching the plain facts, historical and otherwise, of the fishery, they might scout at Moby Dick as a mysterious fable, or still worse and more detestable, a hideous and intolerable allegory. First, though most men have some vague fitting idea of the general perils of the grand fishery, yet they have nothing like a fixed, vivid conception of those perils and the frequency with which they occur. One reason, perhaps, is that not one in fifty of the actual disasters and death by casualties in the fishery ever find a public record at home, however transient and immediate forgotten that record. Do you suppose that that poor fellow there, who this moment perhaps, caught by the whale line off the coast of New Guinea, is being carried down to the bottom of the sea by the sounding leviathan, do you suppose that that poor fellow's name will appear in the newspaper obituary you read tomorrow at your breakfast? No. No because the mails are very irregular between here and New Guinea. In fact, did you ever hear what might be called regular news direct or indirect from New Guinea? Yet I tell you that upon one particular voyage, which I made the Pacific, among many others we spoke thirty different ships, every one of which had a death by a whale, some of them more than one, and three had each lost a boat's crew. For God's sake, be economical with your lamps and candles.' Not a gallon you burn, but at least one drop of man's blood was spilled for it. Secondly, people ashore have indeed some indefinite idea that a whale is an enormous creature of enormous power. But I have ever found that when narrating to them some specific example of this twofold enormousness, they have significantly complimented me upon my fastidiousness. When I declare upon my soul, I had no more idea of being fastidious than Moses when he wrote the history of the plagues of Egypt. But fortunately, the special point I here seek can be established upon testimony entirely independent of my own. That point is this. The sperm whale is in some cases sufficiently powerful, knowing and judiciously malicious, as with direct forefront to stave in, utterly destroy, and sink a large ship. And what is more, the sperm whale has done it. First, in the year 1820, "'The ship Essex, Captain Pollard of Nantucket, "'was cruising in the Pacific Ocean. "'One day she saw spouts, lowered her boats, "'and gave chase to a shoal of sperm whales. "'Ere long several of the whales were wounded "'when suddenly a very large whale escaping from the boats "'issued from the shoals and bore directly down upon the ship, "'dashed his forehead against her hull. "'He so stove her in that in less than ten minutes "'she settled down and fell over.' Not a surviving plank of her has been seen since. After the severest exposure, part of the crew reached the land of their boats. Being returned home at last, Captain Pollard once more sailed for the Pacific in command of another ship. But the gods shipwrecked him again upon unknown rocks and breakers. For the second time, his ship was utterly lost, and forthwith forswearing the seas, he has never tempted it since. And this day Captain Pollard is a resident of Nantucket. I have seen Owen Chase, who was chief mate of the Essex at the time of the tragedy. I have read his plain and faithful narrative. I have conversed with his son and all this within a few miles of the scene of the catastrophe. I followed all extracts from Chase's narrative— Every fact to warrant me in concluding that it was anything but chance which directed his operations, he made two several attacks upon the ship, at a short interval between them, both of which, according to their direction, were calculated to do us the most injury, by being made ahead, and thereby combining the speed of two objects for his shock, to effect which the exact maneuvers which he had made were necessary. His aspect was most horrible, and such as indirect resentment and fury." He came directly from the shoal which he had just entered, and in which we had struck three of his companions, as if fired from revenge of their sufferings. Again, at all events, the whole circumstances taken together, all happening before my own eyes, and producing at times impressions in my mind of decided, calculating mischief, on the part of the whale, many of which impressions I cannot now recall, induce me to be satisfied that I am correct in my opinions." Here are the reflections Some time after quitting the ship, during a black night in an open boat, when almost despairing of reaching any hospitable shore. The dark ocean and swelling waters were nothing. The fear of being swallowed up by some dreadful tempest or dashed upon hidden rocks, with all other ordinary subjects of fearful contemplation, seemed scarcely entitled to the moment's thought. The dismal-looking wreck, and the horrid aspect and revenge of the whale, whose engrossed my reflections until Day again made its appearance. In another place, page 45, he speaks of the mysterious and mortal attack of the animal. Secondly, the ship Union, also of Nantucket, was in the year 1807 totally lost off the Azores by a similar onset, but the authentic particulars of this catastrophe I have never chanced to encounter, though from the whale hunters I have now and then heard casual allusions to it. Third, some eighteen or twenty years ago, Commodore J., then commanding an American sloop of war of the first class, happened to be dining with a party of whale captains on board a Nantucket ship in the harbor of Oahu, Sandwich Islands. Conversation turning upon whales, the Commodore was pleased to be skeptical, touching the amazing strength ascribed to them by the professional gentlemen present, He peremptorily denied, for example, that any whale could smite his stout sloop of war as to cause her to leak so much as a thimbleful. Very good. But there is more coming. Some weeks after, the Commodore set sail in the impregnable craft of Alparaiso, but he was stopped by the way of a portly sperm whale that begged a few moments' confidential business with him. That business consisted in fetching the Commodore's craft such a thwack that with all his pumps going, he made straight for the nearest port to heave down and repair. I am not superstitious, but I consider the Commodore's interview with the whale providential. Was not Saul of Taurus converted from unbelief by a similar fright? I tell you, the sperm whale will stand no nonsense. I will now refer you to Langsdorf's voyage, for a little circumstance in point, peculiarly interesting to the writer hereof. Langsdorff, you must know, by the way, was attached to the Russian Admiral Krustenstern's famous discovery expedition in the beginning of the present century. Captain Langsdorff thus begins his 17th chapter. By the 13th of May, our ship was ready to sail, and the next day we were out in the open sea, on our way to Oscotch. The weather was very clear and fine but so intolerably cold that we were obliged to keep on our fur clothing. For some days we had very little wind. It was not till the 19th that a brisk gale from the northwest sprang up. An uncommon large whale, the body of which was larger than the ship itself, lay almost at the surface of the water, but was not perceived by anyone on board to the moment when the ship, which was in full sail, was almost upon him, so that it was impossible to prevent this striking against him. We were thus placed in the most imminent danger, and this gigantic creature, setting up his back, raised the ship three feet at least out of the water. The mast reeled, and the sails fell altogether, while we who were below all sprang instantly upon deck, concluding that we had struck upon some rock. Instead of this, we saw the monster sailing off with the utmost gravity and solemnity. Captain De Wolfe applied immediately to the pumps to examine whether or not the vessel had received any damage from the shock but we found that very happily it had escaped entirely uninjured. Now, the Captain DeWolf here alluded to as commanding the ship in question is a New Englander, who, who, after a long life of unusual adventures as a sea captain, this day resides in the village of Dorchester, near Boston. I have an honor of being a nephew of his. I have peculiarly questioned him concerning the passage of Langsdorf. He substantiates every word. The ship, however, was by no means a large one, a Russian craft built on the Siberian coast and purchased by my uncle after bartering away the vessel in which he sailed from home, in that up-and-down manly book of old-fashioned adventure, so full, too, of honest wonders, the voyage of Lionel Wafer, one of ancient Dampier's old chums. I found little matter set down, so like the just quoted from Langsdorf, that I cannot forbear inserting it here for a corroborative example, if such be needed." Lionel, it seems, was on his way to John Fernando's, as he was called the modern Juan Fernandez. In our way thither, he says, about four o'clock in the morning when we were about 150 leagues from the main of America, our ship felt a terrible shock, which put our men in such consternation that they could hardly tell where they were or what to think, but every one... But everyone began to prepare for death, and indeed the shock was so sudden and violent that we took it for granted that the ship had struck against a rock. But when the amazement was a little over, we cast the lead and sounded, but found no ground. The suddenness of the shock made the guns leap in their carriages, and several of the men were shaken out of their hammocks. Captain Davis, who lay with his head on a gun, was thrown out of the cabin. Lionel then goes on to impute the shock of an earthquake and seems to substantiate the imputation by stating that a great earthquake somewhere about that time did actually do great mischief along the Spanish land. But I should not much wonder if, in the darkness of that early hour of the morning, the shock was after all caused by an unseen whale vertically bumping the hull from beneath. I might proceed with several more examples, one way or another known to me, of the great power and malice at times of the sperm whale, In more than one instance, he has been known not only to chase the assailing boats back to their ships, but to pursue the ship itself, and long withstand all the lances hurled at him from its decks. The English ship, Pusey Hall, can tell a story on that head, and, as for the strength, let me say that there have been examples where the lines attached to a running sperm whale have, in a calm, been transferred to the ship that secured there the whale towering her great hull through the water as a horse walks off with a cart. Again, it is very often observed that, if the sperm whale once struck is allowed time to rally, he then acts, not so often with blind rage as with the willful, deliberate designs of destruction to his purposes, nor is it without conveying some eloquent indication of his character— that upon being attacked, he will frequently open his mouth and retain it in that dread expansion for several consecutive minutes. But I must be content with only one more and a concluding illustration, a remarkable and most significant one, but which you will not fail to see, that not only is the most marvelous event in this book corroborated by plain facts of the present day, but that these marvels, like all marvels, are mere repetitions of the ages— So that for the millionth time we say amen to Solomon, verily there is nothing new under the sun. In the 6th Christian century lived Procopius, a Christian magistrate of Constantinople, in the days where Justinian was an emperor and Belisarius a general. As many know, he wrote the history of his own times, a work every way of uncommon value, By the best authorities, he has always been considered a most trustworthy and unexaggerating historian, except in some one or two particulars, not at all affecting the matter presently to be mentioned. Now in this history of his, Procopius mentioned that, during the term of his prefecture at Constantinople, a great sea monster was captured in the neighboring Propontis, or Sea of Memora, After having destroyed vessels at intervals in those waters for a period of more than fifty years, a fact thus set down in substantial history cannot easily be gainsaid, nor is there any reason it should be. Of what precise species this sea monster was is not mentioned, but as he destroyed ships, as well as for other reasons, he must have been a whale, and I am strongly inclined to think a sperm whale, and I will tell you why. For a long time, I fancied that the sperm whale had been always unknown in the Mediterranean and the deep waters connecting with it. Even now, I am certain that those seas are not, and perhaps never can be, in the present constitution of things, a place for his habitual gregarious resort. But further investigations have recently proved to me that in modern times there have been isolated instances of the presence of the sperm whale in the Mediterranean, I am told on good authority that on the Barbary coast, the Commodore Davis of the British Navy found the skeleton of a sperm whale. Now, as a vessel of war readily passes through the Dardanelles, hence a sperm whale could by the same route pass out of the Mediterranean into the Propontis. In the Propontis, as far as I can learn, none of that peculiar substance called Brit is to be found, the ailment of the right whale. But I have every reason to believe that the food of the sperm whale, squid, or cuttlefish lurks at the bottom of the sea, because large creatures, but by no means the largest of the sort, have been found at its surface. If, then, you properly put these statements together, and reason upon them a bit, you will clearly perceive that, according to all human reasoning, Procopius's sea monster that for half a century stove the ships of a Roman emperor must in all probability have been a sperm whale."